Hello there, Talking Fight fans around the world. Thank you once again for joining Christian, myself, on another episode on the Olympics. Although today we have a very special guest joining us. Uh, Jennifer Huggins will be joining us, and uh, Christian's going to take the time uh, to read a very extensive and excellent bio, I must say. Uh, and we are very proud to have her join us. So uh, I'll just throw it over to you, Christian. Uh, I do not have very... time to actually read. Yeah, I do not have the time, and neither do you guys, to read her entire bio. Uh, so a... we're not going to. We're going to. We're going to let her do a lot of the talking on this one. Actually, variety is the spice of life. Is the mantra by which the ball of energy known as Jennifer Huggins uh, lives her life. Now, Jennifer owns and operates the Kingsway Boxing Club in Toronto. She is a three-star international boxing referee and judge with the AIBA. She is the president of the board of directors for Boxing Ontario. She is also the uh, chief official for uh, Boxing Ontario. She sits on the Gender Equity Advisory Group for Boxing Canada, as well as the Canadian Officials Commission. She also, op she also operates the Fight to End Cancer in partnership with Princess Margaret Hospital. And when she's not doing any of these things, she's traveling the world getting sawn in half. So let's bring her on. Let's and find out where she has the time to do all these things. I'm still I'm still in one piece. It's been about a year since I've been sawing half, half because of the uh, COVID. <laughs> well, I mean, we're glad to we're glad to see that you're in one piece, and we're glad that you were able to take the time out of your obviously very busy schedule to uh, to find the time to be with us here today. So I, I guess we should start at the, if, with the logical uh, in the logical space here, which is uh, of course figure skating. Uh, I guess that would be logical, right? It's on my it's on my resume. So from ring, well, that's from where that's ring. where we start. Uh, you've always been a competitor, but it didn't begin in the ring. It started off uh, on the on the ice. So tell us yeah. about that. Yeah. So I mean, I'm I'm in the ring now. Actually, sitting on the ring right now. Uh, but it started off in the rink uh, when I was maybe I guess it would have been about five years old. Very competitive person. I, I think my parents recognized that. I My brother was getting into skating because he needed to learn how to skate so he didn't look silly, I guess, on the ice with his friends at school. And just like every little sister, I was like, well, I want to do what my big brother's doing. And of course, I was always competitive with my big brother, which he would not have the same words to say about me. He didn't, he didn't like how competitive I was because I just wanted to be better than him. I think that was my only goal. Um, and then Basically, from there, my competitive spirit just drove me into competing. I uh, ended up going to the national level for figure skating, both in singles and in dance. Uh, my brother actually ended up being my dance partner, which is a totally different story in itself. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I would recommend this to any parent, any parent listening or watching this right now. Do not put your children into a sport where they have to look into each other's eyes and quote unquote, look like you want to, you know, make love to the person. Because that's what <laughs> dance and tango and all of the... That is just not, a, it's not, doesn't make for a great uh, future. <laughs> so it makes for anyway, therapy bills. Oh my gosh, totally, totally. Again, another story. So we, uh, we competed together and I competed for about 10 years at the, you know, competitive national level and then uh, ended up facing a pretty serious injury, uh, which led me into the boxing ring. <laughs> Long story short. So were you, uh, were you headed towards an Olympic run on the ice before, uh, before your accident? Yeah, so that was it was that was my dream. It was definitely the pathway I was on. Uh, I was 14 years old at the time when I was at the senior level, which would be the highest level you can be for singles. I was junior national with my brother uh, as a dance partner. Uh, I think that if I had stayed on track with the sport, that that was kind of that those were the steps I was taking. So you know, provincial, national, international competition. 
however, I was lacking, in a, now looking back, I was lacking a lot of the, the components that uh, I found out just before this interview that Graham's mother was a judge. So maybe she might uh, might have been able to give a little <laughs> more insight, but I think that I was lacking. At 14 years old, I think I was lacking on some of the, um, you know, uh, the merit that, uh, you know, you have the artistic merit and you have the technical. Technical, I was great, but artistically, I was not necessarily, you know, the performer I am today that can get cut up and uh, cut in half on stage and then come out <laughs> in one piece. I wasn't there yet as a 14-year-old. So on the pathway, yes, but not necessarily, uh, not necessarily there quite yet. Fair, fair enough, fair enough. And you said there was an accident that took you away from the skating world, though. Uh, I don't want to go, you know, dig up too many painful memories, but can you tell us a little bit about the accident? Yeah, yeah. And how so that led you into boxing. <laughs> Um, it led me into boxing and more importantly led me into, uh, I think, a leadership coaching role within the sport mm -hmm. of boxing and has defined the person I am today. So long story short on that one, I fractured my C3 when I was figure skating at 14 years old uh, as a result of a fall. However, probably the fracture didn't occur until the coaching team that I was working with uh, encouraged me to continue pushing through the symptoms of what I had already injured myself doing. I was feeling some numbness in my hands, numbness in my feet. And mm -hmm. it was that turning point in life when you realize that your coaches or as a coach, you are, you know, 100% that person who is in control and it's a very big responsibility. And as a 14 year old, you know, child who had only dreams of going to the Olympics, I had no friends, I had, you know, very little family. And the only thing I had, the only goal I had was to go to the Olympics. So I would listen without question to my coaches. And if the coach says, keep going, I'm gonna keep going. So. I think that was a very, you know, pivotal moment in my life to learn how important it is to, you know, real, realize your responsibility, but also, you know, even if you have doubts that that athlete or that person, you know, really is feeling any kind of pain or, you know, maybe they're over-exaggerating, you know what, better be safe than sorry. And my motto actually now as a referee and judge, which I'm sure we're going to get to, is I would rather stop 1,000 bouts too soon than one bout too late. And that is 100% how I operate in life as a coach, as a person, as an official. And I think that that is something that I will never, you know, regret my experience that I went through as a as a 14 year old athlete, because it really has defined the way that I'll treat people now. So for those at home who don't have a degree in kinesiology, there your C3, that's that's up here, right? That's in the neck. Yeah. So it's it's the spot yeah. that between your C3 and C4 that if you sever that nerve, you are now quadriplegic. So the reason I was feeling numbness in my hands and my feet was because there was a pinching from Pressure. the inflammation. Yeah. yeah. So I spent about two months in hospital. The recovery was actually quite quick considering. Um, mm -hmm. I was in traction. And for those of you guys who don't know what traction is, you know, you see people in those halos. Well, before you get into one of those halos, you're in bed and you have weights attached to your neck and you're on Valium. You're on a lot of medication to try to relax the muscles to be able to make sure that the recovery happens in a way that doesn't compress that nerve. So it's a, it's a, it's an experience in itself. I was at Sickkids Hospital and have so much, you know, so much grateful feelings towards everything and uh, the help that I received when I was there. And, you know, it's just, it's an experience that you don't wish on anybody, but if you look for silver linings, it's definitely made me the person I am today. So you ended up turning to boxing as part of the rehab from this injury, correct? Uh, kind of. Because <laughs> um, I'm just, I'm trying to follow, I'm trying to follow the headspace going, all right, well, I've had a neck fracture. So again, I'm going to turn as a therapeutic rehab, getting punched in the head repeatedly. <laughs> That's, it's, I'm seeing a disconnect here. They're like, walk me through that decision. So, you know, again, very long story short, I found my way into a boxing club during the rehab. So it wasn't part of the mm -hmm. rehab, but during my rehab and the funds that were supposed to be used towards that and the timing that was supposed to be used towards the rehab, 
I kind of shifted into boxing myself as a, I know, personal decision at 17 years old. So 16, between the ages okay. of 16 and 17. Uh, I did try to go, actually, the, the transition really was that I went back to skating, tried to do it for a little while, tried to coach for a little while, found out that the politics in figure skating actually far away the politics in boxing. Um, I wasn't... <laughs> I wasn't loving the sport. I was loving the, you know, the aspect of coaching and, you know, helping and being, being the person that I was in the sport, but not necessarily loving the sport that I was in anymore. I think I, I recognized that it was not, it wasn't a healthy sport. It wasn't a healthy mentality for me to be pursuing, but I didn't know what I was doing when I walked into the boxing gym and just started hitting things and was like, wow, this is incredible. And, you know, I just, being the competitive person I am, was like, well, it's not enough that I hit stuff. I want to see where this can take me. Can I go to the Olympics? And interestingly enough, at that time, you know, I found out the Olympics didn't exist for women at that time when I first got involved with it. So, you know, my pathways changed and, you know, I still feel like I miss being an athlete and I will take every opportunity I can to compete in whatever I can compete in. But, um, but yeah, that was the kind of transition for me. And it just, it happened. And I was very lucky to be resourceful enough to find my way through at the time because there wasn't very many resources for athletes, especially young athletes and especially female athletes in the sport at the time. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I do want to talk uh, definitely about the coaching and about the boxing club as well. But just before we get to that, um, let's, let's, let's just circle back real quickly to getting sawn in half. Uh, for uh, for a living. So when we're not boxing, we are traveling the world as a magician's assist assistant for uh, Richard Forget. If uh, correct yes. me if I'm wrong on that one. Yeah, you got it. You got it right. I, I would call him Forget because he always forgets everything. <laughs> well, I was trying not to. I was. I, I I had to think about it before I said it out loud. Graham and I both like to think that we're fairly well traveled people. We've both easily got at least a dozen countries under our belts over the years, moving around. But uh, you're you're lapping us. You're doing circles around us with the travel you've done with uh, with Richard Forget as well as uh, as a referee. So, talk. How did you end up as a magician's assistant? So I would say that you know all of that. Uh technical merit that I was gaining points in when I was skating uh, was great. And then I was lacking in the artistic merit. You know, there's those two mm -hmm. components, a, a judge sport as well. And at 18 years old, I got this opportunity. One of my friends, I, I kind of went wayward for from the ages 15 to about 21 when I started my boxing gym. Uh, I was in this like, I was a really fun person to know. I was everywhere, anywhere. <laughs> I would take any job that I could get. It was it was fun. It was dangerous. I, you know, had anything from motorcycle accidents to traveling with my magician to, you know, Egypt. And it's, it's incredible. So I found my way to this magician through a friend of mine who, you know, told me one day, hey, I found this job off of a Kijiji ad or something along those lines. And she's a dancer. And I said, what is it? And she told me, well, I'm going to be traveling with this magician. First, we're going to go to L.A. And then I'm going to, you know, I don't know if you guys have heard of the Magic Castle in L.A. It's a very popular mm -hmm. venue there. Uh, so she was going to L.A. Then she went to perform for the Prince of Monte Carlo. And then she ended up in France and on the um, the Plot Grand Carberry du Monde, which is like a very incredible TV show that mm -hmm. since has been canceled, I think. But it had a good 50 years, I believe, not maybe maybe 40 years of um, air airtime across the world. And, you know, so she had this incredible lineup of this travel. And I mean, up until I was 15, I'd never really left North America. So I was like, oh, my gosh, tell me how I can get involved with this. What, what, how do I do this? You know, I'm a dancer. I've, I've got my background. And she said, well, listen, if I ever can't make it on a trip, I'll let you know. Well, she ended up quitting halfway through the, uh, the tour. And she was like, hey, Jen, I got this great opportunity because I went to L.A. to stay in L.A. I found a guy and I'm going to go get married to him. Uh, I 
for reasons we don't know, but um, you know, it's uh, so she decided she was gonna move to LA in the middle of the tour. So I ended up filling her spot in. So I, I kind of fell into that as well. Um, and just have become, he's, Richard Forget is now one of my, I would say best friends, longest time friends for sure. And he basically, you know, it's a real trust when you're traveling with someone like that. I'd lied about my age, <laughs> talking about trust. I told him that I was 25 or 26 because I thought that was like the age where people can trust people. I'm like, yeah, 18 years old. He's not going to take me on tour with him, but 26, you know, for sure. So wow. I ended up telling him that I was 26 years old and, uh, and he believed it. And I think he told me he was like, 40 and he might have been like 50 so I believed it and then later on uh you know we've known each other for 16 years now and he you know has divulged to me since his actual age I've let him know my real age and uh, <laughs> I caught up I caught up to my real age <laughs> so that was good but yeah so that that's how that happened and I've been around the world and back again with him you know multiple times thanks to an incredible journey that he's you know taken me on and I love it now, in preparation for having this conversation with you today, I did take some time and watch a few of his videos as well, just to kind of get an idea of the sort of thing that you're doing. And it is not, you know, your traditional just, you know, get in the box, you've been sawn in half sort of stuff. We right. have progressed a little bit farther. Uh, and I noticed that you do, you are able to work a lot of your athleticism uh, into his show as well, as well as the skating. I did see a clip or two with you on skates on stage as part of that show. So do you uh, do you still train at all in skating or dance, or do you find that the, the time that you spend in the boxing gym is keeping you fit and limber enough to uh, meet with uh, the demands of the show? Well, listen, I'm in my 30s now, and somebody told me, it might have been my mother, that, you know, when you turn 30 or when you turn 40, you know, your, your body's not going to do what it does, you know. You don't bounce back <laughs> as fast. So uh, when I'm on tour with Rich, so actually the, the last tour I took was uh, the end of last – or the end of 2019 like many people and that was I didn't realize the last tour I was going to be on last time I was going to be performing for quite a long time um and I get a lot of every every show sometimes two shows per day I will get on the stage and I'll be skating and luckily it's not too intense I think it's like a total of one minute and if you've watched any of Richard's um acts he's a stage he's considered a stage illusionist so he's not you know necessarily doing all of the girl get into the box get chopped up uh it's mm -hmm. very it's very theatrical and I have to say that it's it opened my eyes. I had no idea. When you hear a magician, you're waiting for a trick. You're, you know, people ask me all the time, hey, can you do something? And I can do stuff. I'm horrible. That's why I'm the assistant. And it's a great contrast to the life that I live here in Canada because, or, you know, around the world as an official because I'm really not that important on stage, but it's what I do kind of side stage or behind the scenes that makes the, the show happen. Uh, so it's, it is pretty cool. I do keep in shape uh, when I'm on tour and then when I'm here in the gym, Lately, because we've been shut down from COVID, I'm not as in good of shape, and my body is definitely feeling the lack of activity. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I do, I do work the activity into my life. I have a really hard time doing things if it's not for a purpose. So, you know, going and skating around, you know, my gym, for example, to try to practice for a show would be what I typically do. Or, you know, holding pads for an athlete and feeling like I'm actually working out because I need to. That's easy for me because that's when an athlete does. They do things for a purpose. Now, mm -hmm. to go on a treadmill or to do lift weights or wake up and do push-ups like I'm having a hard time I'm not gonna lie I'm having a hard time motivating myself because the outcome is not necessarily there's no there's nothing in sight right now mm -hmm. so I have to get past that mental block as well so I struggle with a lot of the same things that our clients struggle with so let's talk about your clients let's talk about the gym you started Kingsway Boxing Club in 2006 now you know, you walked into the gym, you said you hit a few things and then you had, you know, that was your life, your light bulb moment. You said, this is what I want to take my and my boundless energy and, and direct it towards is boxing. So 
what was the decision to open your own club as opposed to just training out of other clubs? Uh, you know what, the, uh, and this is something I've spoken about in previous interviews, it's very funny to think that, you know, one thought will lead to so many different outcomes. And mm -hmm. my thought process at the time when I first started boxing was, I need my own gym so that I can train and get myself to, you know, go pro or to represent my country or, you know, I really thought, and I mean, that sounds silly. And it, it is, if you look at, you know, now that I know the realistic pathway and the journey you have to take mm -hmm. to become a, an elite boxer, I was going down the completely wrong road for the, you know, or the right road for the wrong reason. Um, so I, I think that what happened was I, I really thought that I needed my own space to, to turn pro. And it wasn't this, it wasn't, you know, you're sitting inside of, you know, 4,000 square foot gym right now, but mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't that it was my apartment at the time. And I just wanted to find a way to, I was all of this time I was going traveling with a magician. I was working nightclubs. I used to be a nightclub security. I was riding my motorcycles. I used to own a motorcycle shop. I was, you know, trying to work out. I was trying to train. I was trying to compete. And I thought, okay, well, what do I do to consolidate all of that into one spot? Get my clients. I was a personal trainer on top of that. Get my clients to come to me so that I can actually put more time into training myself. So that was the intention. But what happens when you start a business and, you know, you guys, I'm sure you can contest to any of this. When you start a business, you're not in it for yourself anymore. You're in it for the community. You're in it for the people that you're trying to take care of. And that shift was another accident that was an incredible outcome because I basically ended up with a boxing gym that I outgrew within two months and I had to open another location and then another location. And it was purely by accident, but with the best intentions. So I think that's something that will always sit in the back of my mind is as long as you have the right intentions, you've got your core values that, you know, the outcomes that come from it, I'm not as, I don't think I'm as goal oriented for lack of a better kind of explanation as I used to be. I'm more, you know, here's where I want to go right now, especially with COVID. Here's where I want to go right now. And whatever outcomes that are great from there, the you know byproduct of that action will be, I'll be proud of. Very cool. So what, what space do you find that the Kingsway uh, Boxing Club is filling in this industry that we're not seeing in other gyms? What's setting Kingsway apart? You know, again, uh, probably another another mistake that is incredible was that, um, and it's not a mistake, I, I'm using the word mistake only because it wasn't purposeful action. Um, five mm -hmm. years into opening my gym, uh, it was 2011, I decided that, you know, I don't feel good because I'm paying my rent. I'm not struggling. I was, I was used to struggling. I was used to, you know, where I'm going to find this money to pay my rent. And the rent's very expensive in Toronto. I had two locations, not because, you know, I wanted to grow bigger, but because I ran out of space and, you know, I, I wanted to pay my rent and I was doing that. And by five years into my gym, I was like, well, I've got my rent and surplus. What am I going to, I felt guilty. What am I going to do with this money? You know, the only reason I have this money coming in is because the clients of mine and my boxers, they believe in me and they believe in the vision and they, they buy in and they support and they invest in, in this thing that I've created. And I had this guilt that, well, what am I giving back to them? Yeah, sure. I'm a great, you know, I'm a great coach if I don't say so myself, but is that enough? And it wasn't for me. So that was actually when I took the step into starting the fight to end cancer. Um, again, didn't realize how big it was going to become. It was with the intention of, and I'm sure this is probably going to come up uh, in the interview, but it was the intention, it was the intention of uh, supporting one of our members directly. And then as well, you know, a fight that doesn't just affect, you know, myself and the people that were important to me at the moment, but it affects the community. But I had no idea how big of a movement that was going to become. And mm -hmm. 10 years later now, it's definitely become one of the main things of what 
what represents Kingsway. So bring it back to your question, you know, what separates Kingsway from maybe the rest of the boxing gyms? I think boxing gyms are incredible. I, I have nothing to say that would be negative against any other boxing gym. Mm -hmm. And other gyms are doing very, you know, similar, but maybe different things to invest back in the community. But I think that our theme, while I, I wish we had more competitive um, athletes right now, we had a more competitive program. I think the reason why we're still here during COVID where we haven't been open, like this is as empty as it's been for the past four months. And then we had the first shutdown as well is not because of our competitive programs, which would be great, but because of the investment we make into the community and, you know, anything that goes beyond what we need to pay rent always ends up investing back into our programs that give back or into fight to end cancer. That is really for not the sport of boxing, but, you know, definitely has good outcomes for that sport. We're definitely going to talk a little bit about the uh, the charity a, a little later on, so we will circle back to that one for sure. How, how your your early experience as a you know growing up as a very competitive athlete? Now we know we covered that as figure skating at the time, not boxing. But how and being pushed through an injury, how has that affected your coaching style when you're dealing with young fighters now in your gym? My coaching style and even my officiating style. So, I mean, that's that's the other side of what I do with boxing outside of the gym and outside of this country. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm traveling the world, you know, refereeing and judging. And, you know, the refereeing side is, you know, again, what I said, our model was to, you know, you have to, I'd rather stop a thousand fights too early than one fight too late. Um, that is, you know, essentially my experience as an, as a, as an athlete. I'm very competitive, so I have to say I've grown a lot as a coach because I could only see things through the lens that I understood, you know, mm -hmm. sports to be. And I was a very competitive athlete coached by, you know, Russians and by Eastern European, you know, uh, the mentality. And it really is a different mentality. You go to Eastern Europe, you go to uh, Cuba, and they have a playbook. And if you don't play by that book, there's no place for you. And I mm -hmm. think that that was my mentality when I first came into coaching. It was like that. that's all I understood. But I still move forward with the understanding that this is a big responsibility and that no matter what my impact, it needs to be positive because my, my the impact I had from a lot of the coaches I worked with and the outcomes that you are now aware of that I endured were because the coaches kind of would run through you and if you weren't good for them or, good, or weren't good enough for elite, then you weren't good enough for anything in their realm of the world. So I think that the one thing that I took from that was that every single person who walks into my gym, anyone who I work with as a coach, um, anyone who leaves their session, you know, even if it's just, you know, their very first and only session they'll ever do as a boxer, mm -hmm. they need to feel not only good about themselves, but like they've taken something away from it that's constructive that, and, and I'm proud of them for even just stepping into the ring. And I think that that is, that's probably as a coach, what I've taken from being coached and from being an elite athlete, um, because that transition is a horrible transition that every elite athlete will face at some point in their life. You know, even if it's on the best of, you know, cases, best circumstances, I mean, you look at Tiger Woods, hopefully he gets back into golfing. But I mean, usually there's some sort of some form of tragedy that is um, associated with the end of somebody's career. And a lot of the times it has to do with just not being selected for a team. And this is kind of the transitional process that I hope to help with athletes in the future. Well, that's excellent. Now, you mentioned just a moment ago that the other side of what you're working on here is obviously the refereeing and the judging side. So you know, we, the fight fans, we rarely kind of spare a thought for the officials and the referees. They're often these faceless people in the ring or next to the ring that we, the viewers, the fans from the comfort of our living rooms and online like to hurl abuse at. Uh, this could be a pretty thankless job. So what made you jump, uh, you know, into that side of things as opposed to staying in the fighter's corner and sticking to coaching? 
Well, I've I definitely can't... screamed, possibly at my TV, possibly <laughs> at you during the, you know, the African Olympic qualifiers a few years ago, for example, among other large tournaments that you've been a part of. So oh, it's funny. I've it's done funny some screaming that, yeah. and I apologize. <laughs> it's funny you bring that, that tournament up, especially that was in Cameroon in 2015. And that was one of the mm -hmm. qualifiers for the Rio 2016 Olympics. Um, mm -hmm. it, that was a really tough one for me just because you know you're dealing with you know some of the most elite athletes and in countries that are you know you're not you're not in your country people don't care who you are now now especially with covid you're gonna be wearing a mask so you know in some ways i might be able to hide behind that mask a little bit better i don't want to hide behind what i do i'm very proud of what i do with the athletes and the purpose that provides they always say the difference between training versus competition is you know the referee because you know if you don't have somebody mm -hmm. there the referees and judges then you're just practicing um, for me, I think one of the biggest influences for me to get into uh, officiating and stick with it and really continue with it was the fact that, you know, I didn't feel like I was on the best end of the decisions as a, a judge sport in figure skating. I never felt like those decisions were really fair. And I, I am also the type of person who doesn't want to necessarily complain about something without trying to do something to make it better. So I realized after my first, you know, competition, judging or refereeing, I think it was, that it's not that easy. It's not so cut and dry. And it's a big, it's a big responsibility. It's a big job and it's a very important one. And I, I guess, again, the competitive nature that I have, I wanted to, you know, experience and keep on, you know, helping and providing the expertise that I had as an athlete, as an understanding the sport. And really, I do have a very good understanding, especially now, very good understanding of the sport and how do I translate that back to the sport giving back but also maybe explaining that's actually one of the next initiatives I have right now is within our province within Canada as well explaining to the coaches to the athletes what it is that we're looking for because I think that's the biggest part of the game is if you don't understand the rules or what the judges are looking for how are you going to win that and that was my problem as an athlete so that's kind of how it sort of continued to grow for me and that desire in me made me realize that I can make a much bigger difference um, through my work as an official than even as a coach, though I still coach. Cool. So how long did it take you from the time that you started refereeing and judging to work your way up to being the first female three-star uh, referee and judge for the AIBA in North America? How long um, was that, that process was, for you? It was actually a really short process. I think I'm very lucky. I think that there's some, there's some luck when it comes to, there's a huge amount of luck when it comes to, um, I would say the top of the top of anything. I mean, you mm -hmm. look at you look at athletes, that might be one thing, but if you look at like actors or people, even what I'm doing with my magician, like how many dancers are there that are 100% better than I am at dancing who haven't gotten these incredible opportunities to become, you know, professional um, dancers with a magician traveling around the world or going on mm -hmm. tour? How many officials are there like myself, like hundreds, millions of officials like myself who never would have been seen by the right people at the right moment and maybe be the right gender within the right time of, of the world to be able to step into these positions. So um, I very, very luckily got set up. Uh, I started refereeing or officiating um, in and around the 2009 time. Uh, I had to look at mm -hmm. my book to verify those, those dates. And then by 2014, I was uh, considered a three-star official because I took, I was actually fast-tracked and upgraded into, it was called the Extraordinary, um, I think, RNJ program through IA, but I forget the exact exact thing, but that they mm -hmm. sent me to, Canada sent me to uh, Cuba um, because I was just upgraded by officials who came into Canada and said, well, we kind of want to work with her. And 
they realized that there was a need for more women in the sport because in 2012, that was actually the progression. In 2012 was when the first mm-hmm. uh, women were included in the sport of boxing in the Olympics. So there became mm-hmm. this need for officials in the Olympic level um, who were women, and that need was not there before. Therefore, if I'd come in for years before, maybe I wouldn't have been looked at, or if I quit years before, then I definitely wouldn't have been seen by the right people at the right time. So it was a pretty so, quick transition. Yeah. So by the time you did make it to that three-star level, did you find that the AIBA were kind of were welcoming you with open arms at that point, eager to show how progressive they were being? Or was this still a bit of an uphill battle in what has traditionally been a male-dominated sport? I think it's still an uphill battle um, because mm-hmm. it is still a male-dominated sport. However, interesting fact that we're looking at right now in Canada is that the majority of our athletes who are meddling at the international level are women. So mm-hmm. while it is predominantly a male sport and amateur, and while we still have many more male athletes in the sport or much more representation of male in the sport, uh, we really honestly are doing much better and you know, progressing quite far farther in the sport because of the women that we have involved. So it's still an uphill battle. Uh, I was welcomed in, I think, maybe for different reasons. Um, I, I would say that I'm, I am very... I'm very easy to get along with. I think that's just something that, you know, I, I love people and I will find love for people no matter who they are, what they say or how they interact and how they treat me even, um, which can be to my detriment. So there were a lot of, uh, I would say, struggles that happened when I first got in, especially in 2014. Uh, 2015 would be the lead up to the 2016 Olympics. Mm-hmm. There were some very public outcomes uh, after the 2016 Olympics uh, with corruption and situations that I I faced firsthand um, and it was it was definitely a lot of it had to do of the treatment that maybe I had had to do with being a female and I would say that the people that maybe gave me the treatment would argue that you know they were exceptionally uh, exceptionally welcoming to me because I was female but again that would be it would just be an indifferent interpretation so it's still quite a struggle because we're not just dealing with Canadians. If I was just dealing with Canadians, that would be a different different story. I, I'm very welcomed in Canada. Mm-hmm. But when you're dealing with other countries that are still not as progressive, there's still countries like Cuba who do not have an elite female program that would have any woman because, you know, quote unquote, their women are too beautiful to get into the sport and they wouldn't want to see their, you know, and there are women who are competing, but mm-hmm. they're not necessarily taken at the national. They don't have a national, not yet. They don't have a national team for women yet. So that's something that Graham and I have talked about a few times on this segment, as well as on our Friday night panels, is about normalizing the experience of seeing women in combative sports. Now, I know in 2018, I believe, you were the Canadian delegate for the first uh, AIBA Gender Equality Forum in uh, Sofia, Bulgaria. And I believe you also currently sit on Boxing Canada's Gender uh, Equity Advisory Group. So what what is being done to facilitate this normalization and you know where do we more importantly what can we be doing better i think i think this conversation in itself the fact that i'm having it with a male the fact i mean i i would use the term you know preaching to the choir when we when i went to bulgaria for example this mm-hmm. incredible concept with incredible speakers there was a uh, gabriela mendoza and i'm probably pronouncing her name wrong but she led this group for the whole weekend but it was all women they they had a meeting before with all the executives from the all the all the delegates from all the countries which were male. how can you have an equality meeting and only invite half the people you can't that doesn't make like sense you, to me yeah i mean and that's actually she put out a really great meme the other day where it just showed equality 
and equity is not all women and one man. And it's not, you know, all men and mm -hmm. one woman. It's, it's neither of those. And there's a major difference between equity and equality, which, I mean, that would be a whole other interview in itself. And I would say I'm an advocate. I, I would, you know, I've been labeled as a feminist and I actually wouldn't necessarily, I mean, I think that it's a very strong label and I don't necessarily, mm -hmm. don't, I don't not identify as a feminist, but at the same time, I really advocate for, you know, fair treatment. I've, I'm so lucky that I believe that I've been given so many great opportunities in fair treatment because I had blinders on and I had no idea that a lot of this stuff was going on or that even some of the things I endured were, you know, very unequitable, unequitable you know, experiences. But with the blinders on, I didn't feel them or see them at the time. And mm -hmm. if I now, with what I understand, what I see and what I acknowledge, if I don't do something or take a step up and try to make sure that, you know, this treatment doesn't continue or that more opportunities are not available, I think that I would be considered complicit in the, the issue that we have at hand. And that's part of why I've taken that step. What can be done, we can talk more, we can support more. I, there's still a major gap with, you know, they always say, you know, they being, you know, the media always says, you know, there's not enough need for there to be as much exposure for women. You know, let's use boxing, for example. You're not gonna see as many female fights. You're starting to see them sometimes, you know, International Women's Day, we had, you know, all these women on one card. It was incredible, it was great as a kind of, you know, here we go, here's what we're doing, which is great. And I think that there's going to be more like that. But the argument is that, well, no one's really watching the female boxing. Well, if you're not putting it out there for people to watch and you're not putting it out there for, you know, young women and, you know, girls, young girls or young boys to, and, and you know, men to watch, how do they know what they want to watch? You know, so it's very uh, media bias, like to say that, you know, who's going to watch it. You have to put it out there so people can see it. And, you know, it's just we need better access to opportunity. Exactly, exactly. So, mm -hmm. what's being done? Uh, Sport Sport Canada, at least, is mandating a minimum forty percent uh, of leadership roles uh, being allotted to women, and that is happening as of twenty twenty two, which is part of why, and that's next year. Uh, that's part of why I'm sitting on this advisory group at this moment. It's not it's not considered a committee yet, but we're trying to work to ensure that we create the educative processes and we, you know, help get the woman who would be the proper people to put in these positions, not just you know filling spots, but getting people who are engaged, involved and smart and educated to make helpful decisions and you know a progressive sport. Uh, so that's part of what's happening. Um, and it's very, it's gonna happen very quickly and it has to be a mandate because unless you mandate it, it doesn't happen. And so that's kind of the next step. It's gonna be interesting to see what happens, uh, but I'm, I'm excited to be a part of that process. Yeah, no, that sounds that sounds amazing. I did have a list here of awards and honors and all kinds of stuff that I was going to get into you. I mean, I know you know what they are. I was going to tell other people what they were. Uh, most recently, the the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, uh, gave you uh, the Women in Sport Achievement uh, for 2020. Now, I can't. I don't have time to go into all this because we are running a bit short on time. So I wanted to congratulate you on that. But I did want to shift. There was a couple other things I wanted to get into today. But you know, we're just. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So what I would like to, you to take some time with here and for our viewers is tell us about the fight to end cancer. Because apparently you uh, had sworn off sleep. Uh, you needed something else to fill your time. You were getting bored. The fight to end cancer in partnership with Princess Margaret Hospital. Tell us all about it. Tell us how we can get involved. Okay, so I know we're pressed for time. So I, I see underneath my... No, no, you, you, you take all the time you need for this. This is important. Thank you so much. So, you know, fight to end cancer.com, you know, you're going to see a lot of 
things and it's a lot of scattered things because what it represents is not my fight. It represents the fight that we're all faced with, whether it's as a supporter for somebody who's going through cancer, ourselves, you know, a survivor who's going through cancer or somebody we've lost to cancer. And while COVID has eclipsed every part of the world's problems right now, it really has, you know, it's the forefront of everybody's, you know, discussion, fears and, you know, efforts to try to make sure we get through this. It actually hasn't stopped any of the problems, including cancer and cancer treatments. And we work very closely with the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation because their mandate is actually international. They're one of the, one of the top five global researchers and uh, basically provide treatments around the world. And that was right here in our backyard. Uh, it was also the reason um, she was the person who I was fighting for. She was getting treatments there. They're absolutely incredible. But now because of COVID, they're struggling even more. And it makes me want to fight even harder. However, we now, just like everybody else, have to pivot the, the fight that we were doing. So we used to, what the fight to end cancer is in a nutshell, it represents a fight year round. And essentially we would pick people from, you know, different, you know, you guys could fight. You guys could fight each other. Yeah, I could fight you. Actually, I can't fight you. It's, it's a sanctioned fight. So basically we, we take people, 10 people per year, and they have no boxing experience, one of the criteria, and we get them to step into the ring, box against each other, compete against each other in a sanctioned boxing match while actually fighting for the same goal, which is to raise funds for cancer research at the Princess Margaret uh, Cancer Foundation in support of the hospital. And now, there's some training as, involved there as well, though. It's not just putting Graham in the ring who's never boxed before and watch him flail against the CEO of some company. Exactly. No, we, we okay. the other mandate I have as an official, as somebody who wants to protect people within the sport of boxing, is to ensure that it's a safe sport and that we represent boxing. And we highlight and we showcase boxing as a sport that it really is, because realistically, an amateur, the we don't look at the injuries inside the ring the same as maybe an, a pro fight would be looking for. Our goal is not knockouts, it's points driven. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not it's not the same. So education is part of what we do with the Fight Tang Cancer as well. So we want to educate the people involved, the people watching, while still the outcome being that we raise the most funds we can to ensure that cancer is ended in our lifetime. And that is really what our vision, our goal, and our mission comes down to. And we are, uh, we've already raised one point, we've donated 1.5 million to the Princess Margaret. It slowed down because of COVID. <laughs> Thanks. And uh, we are now looking at pivoting and, you know, the next strategy that we have to try to deal with these times, because it's really hard to ask people for money when they don't really have money. I mean, even us, we're, we're relying on government support. You know, you don't pay the bills by an empty gym. You don't pay the bills, you know, through empty stores. And that's the reality we're all facing right now. So how do you keep fighting for something that's incredibly important to not just me, but the future of what is facing our community? And, you know, I'll be long gone, but this fight hopefully will still be fighting. You know, how do you keep that going at a time right now where it's so critical and then, you know, there onward? So you will get back to the fight for sure by hopefully next year. And we have a, a roster of fighters waiting to compete. But in the meantime, we've launched... You're going to have to wait, Graham. <laughs> yeah, not yet. You've got time to train you <laughs> oh, yet. Oh, darn. <laughs> so... <laughs> that might be one of those fights you might have to... One of those thousand fights you might have to stop a little early. <laughs> well, uh, I'll, uh, I'll keep my eye on it. And I mean, as long as you make it into the ring, then you've done your part. Because all of the hard work as a fighter... Uh, for fight to end cancer is done before your fight. Just like uh, I, I, I'm not gonna, I don't want to massacre uh, Muhammad Ali's quote, but you know it, the essence is that the majority of all of the fight is completed before you actually step into the ring, and that is exactly how it is for the fight to end cancer. You know, all the fighters, all the sponsors, the supporters—they're all raising funds leading up to that fight, and then the fight is just a celebration. So we would never let anyone get hurt during that uh, process. 
Um, but now what we're doing is offering, uh, we're just working on it right now. So if you go to our site, you're not going to see this yet. Um, but hopefully we'll be able to launch it by, I would say, May, end of May, uh, the FTech shop. So you can actually wear your support now. And by wearing a T-shirt or wearing a face mask or, you know, putting on a pair of gloves that actually, you know, say defeat is not an option, which is our motto, um, you're supporting the fight to end cancer. You're still continuing to drive funds and support and just awareness to the cause and keeping the fight alive, which is right now just the same as what all the businesses are trying to do is stay alive. We want to try to keep the fight going so that the people who are still fighting for their lives have something to, you know, relax. They can, they can focus on themselves because we're still fighting for them. Okay, so do you have to definitely let us know once the uh, once the products go live, uh, and we can definitely will let our viewership know once they are live, and we'll be able to direct them to the uh, website. Uh, I'm sure if you're watching at home right now, you can see just below Jennifer there. The fight to end cancer .com is the website. Please go check it out. Uh, how can people get involved though? Uh, is sponsorship volunteers? Is there what what can they be doing before so the merch right now, goes live? Yeah. What what can we be doing? Right now, we have. Uh, if you do go to our website, you'll you know you'll see the donate donation portion. We're aware that donations are really tough right now, but even two dollars, one dollars. We had a young girl who brought in her her coins from her. You know, um, it was her piggy bank. She just emptied her piggy bank. It was pennies. I don't even think we use pennies anymore. But you know what? Every penny counts. And I know that that sounds it sounds so like um, commercial. You know, every penny your pennies count. They do. They. I've watched those pennies. Those young kids who are doing lemonade stands during COVID them bringing those those funds to us that is still something and it's so so um so much gratitude from the hospital and from the doctors we still work very close with the doctors and we hear from them you know just so grateful that we're still fighting and those funds they add up every penny every penny adds up and that's how we've gotten we didn't get to 1.5 million by you know large huge lump sum donations we got to them by five dollars twenty dollars 20 cents here and there so the donation you can get involved with and then we are definitely looking for sponsors so if you're amazon or if you're those companies that are doing really well right now work those work the the community into your your uh, mandate work the community and it's not good enough to say we support the community we have to actually take action and that's what my goal as a business as an entrepreneur who has decided that even while i struggle to pay the rent i will still make sure if there's any money coming in certain money goes into that fund uh, that's our future. And, you know, I might not be there to see the outcome of it. I really hope that we can end cancer in our lifetime. However, you know, we will end cancer in our lifetimes if we all fight for the same goal. Absolutely brilliant. Now, just before we sign off here, uh, I do have one, you know, one last question for you. And we like to throw these ones around just to see, throw a bit of a curveball here. So Ooh, we ask... Nice. Uh, no, no. So we, we ask, and, and Big Mike from Knuckle Up at, with Mike Orr at Four likes this question a lot. As in, we haven't had a ref or a judge weigh, on, weigh in on this one. You're obviously better acquainted with the Queensbury rules than uh, anyone else we've talked to here. If you could propose one rule change in, in boxing, what would you see? What would you like to see? Now, I know Big Mike. He is forever, and this is, he likes to do this from, again, the comfort of his couch. He, he does not like the standing eight count. And he also wants to see four ounce gloves on everyone's hands, but they doesn't hear when people say that's just, I know. <laughs> we're going he bare just, knuckle guys. We're going bare knuckle. Tell if you'd let him, he would, if you'd let him, he would, but it'd be nothing let but broken Mike, knuckles. Let Big Mike jump into the ring with me first. And then we'll see if he still wants to go bare knuckle. <laughs> I would pay money to see that. If we can set that up for the, uh, the fight to end cancer, I would definitely pay good money to see that. But what rule change would you like to see happen in boxing? So in amateur boxing, the standing eight count, I will 
always argue to keep that there. The purpose of the standing mm -hmm. eight count is to, in amateur boxing, support that athlete to ensure that we can, you know, ensure certain, you know, certain things like safety before you get knocked out. So that is the purpose of the standing eight count. I will stand by that 100%. And yes, while it gets misused a lot because new referees or even experienced referees may misinterpret, you know, a stumble for an eight count, I would still rather stop a thousand by accident than one too late that ends up being a death or, you know, a severe injury. So, and that comes from being a very, you know, severely injured athlete. So that one, I won't, uh, I won't agree with him on, but. Nobody has yet. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. That, that's good to hear. <laughs> Nobody has yet, but he, but he keeps gunning for it. Yeah, he does. Well, tell him to come. Tell him to come have a talk with me, and I'll give him a couple standing eight counts, and he'll we'll see how he feels about them. Um, so we're bringing our cameras for that. I've been giving a lot of thought to it. <laughs> perfect, perfect. I love it. Um, I've given a lot of thought to what it is that's going to make because I believe the biggest problem in amateur sport is judging. I big. I feel. I really do believe that, and I believe the biggest problem in amateur boxing, and this is coming from a judge, is the construct of. Uh, what we've created with judging. Now, I do believe that the system has been definitely modified and fixed a lot for the lead up to uh, Tokyo. So Tokyo is coming up. Mm -hmm. The IOC, the, the boxing task force from the IOC, it's the very first time, I believe in history, that the IOC, um, the International Olympic Committee, has taken on the entire mechanics um, and sanctioning for boxing. So they are the ones who created the, or who selected the officials. They're the ones who are gonna sanction the sport. That hasn't happened. There's usually an ISO that is in, it takes care of that. Um, yeah, this is an ad hoc task force being run by the head of the gymnastics department, I believe, uh, in Japan. Yeah. So, Yes, exactly. Well, in the IOC. So what I think would actually help as an official and has helped me as an official mm -hmm. would be the mandatory. You've got one minute break for those athletes to, uh, you know, rest up and catch their breath and get, you know, one or two pointers from their coaches. Well, why not mm -hmm. impose the mandatory explanation, you know, it's a judge sport still. So, you know, there's a criteria, the Queensbury rules, we've, we're on a 10 point must system. Anything around a nine point, nine to 10 score means that mm -hmm. we've gone down our criteria to technique and tactics. Well, why not impose a mandatory description? It could be just a few words, a sentence as to how did you get to a nine, 10 for X athlete and what criteria did you use? And hold those judges accountable for what it is that they're actually judging and they do so it show your work on don't just give me the answer show your work exactly how did you we tell me what how you got to that card okay yeah so we got a minute to do that so you know during that minute we have to sit there and you know, look at nothing don't look at each other because you don't want to have any kind of signals or any kind of issues like that and i get that because there was a lot of cheating mm -hmm. that was happening and that's very public you know public information but that's why we have the down, boxing task force right now yeah yeah exactly so writing down what it is and how you got there or maybe having a selection process by which you can do that or submit your you know answer as to what you did and how you got there i think that that will hold the judges accountable maybe not you know but at the very least they can be reviewed and this goes for pro as well they can be reviewed if they, they come to a completely wrong answer as to you know a wrong decision that is so obviously they watch a different fight then it gives also the people who we have supervisors as well to the opportunity to be able to change those people or educate them better at what their job actually represents because there usually is a correct answer and a lot of the times when you see those you know decisions that come out that you're like what was that person watching how does that make any sense it's because they got to the incorrect answer with the incorrect criteria 
a well thought out answer and honestly not the way I thought I was going to go, but that is uh, you make a brilliant point there. And we usually think of it from terms of inside the ring, what we would like to see changed, but that's a brilliant point about what's going on outside the ring and stuff. We're not always uh, taking into account. Jennifer Hoggins, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, fight fans at home, join the fight to end cancer websites on the, on your screen right now, get involved any way you can once we get back to actual fighting let's see some sponsors let's see some volunteers let's see some fighters out there and uh, we will let you know as soon as the merch goes live for the fight to end cancer and you can support that way thank you so much for taking the time with us today jen thanks guys thank you so much